Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Comic Source Podcast. I'm your host, Jace. This is your new Comics Wednesday episode for May 26, 2021. Ton of books. So many books coming out today. Uh, I'm not even going to be able to talk about all of them. That being said, I think it's a, a new record, unprecedented 19 books that I'm going to talk about. And that doesn't include any DC. Uh, we did get our DC advanced previews a little later than we normally do. There was a slight hiccup. So uh, unfortunately, we didn't have the DC books out you know, first thing in the morning on Tuesday. But that episode is up on YouTube and the Comic Boom YouTube web channel if you want to be able to see the, uh, the graphics and some of the books and art we're talking about. Or uh, obviously, it's available on all podcast platforms anywhere you can find the comic source. So that it was a huge week for DC, too. So between the 11 DC books that we covered on our spoiler-filled DC Spotlight and the 19 books that I'm going to talk about here in our spoiler-free New Comic Day episode, there's a ton of books uh, out this week. So 30 books we're covering for you. Um, hopefully that gives you, you know, more than enough information to go and get the books that you uh, might want or gives you an idea on some of the books that you're uh, unsure about, you know, haven't decided if you should, uh, if you should check out or not. So uh, again, this stuff's all, all spoiler free. And uh, I hope that you enjoy what we have to say. And, uh, and, and this gives you some insight into uh, some of the books that you, you might be uh, on the lookout for today. So uh, I'm going to start with the blue flame this is from writer Christopher Cantwell. The art, uh, the line art, I should say, is by uh, Adam Gorham. There is uh, colors by um, Ken Russell. Uh, I'm sorry, Kurt, <laughs> Kurt Russell, not the actor, uh, Kurt Michael Russell, who is a, uh, a color comic book colorist. And, uh, and this book is just, it, it's really interesting. Um, we had Christopher Cantwell on to talk about it and it's sort of this dual narrative of this really blue collar hero um in uh, the the uh, kind of northern part of the united states i think it's in milwaukee wisconsin and he's part of a, a super team where nobody really has powers he himself doesn't really have powers he's the bloom flame and he he's very much kind of an adam strange analog and it's about them wanting to do something more and give back and it's it's really down to earth and that's one story. Uh, and then there's another side to that coin, this fantastical way out in the middle of nowhere, deep space where the blue flame is, is very much living that, that dual life. So again, kind of the Adam strange um, comparison come, comes into play, right? Just like Adam strange is the hero of earth and uh, a hero uh, at, in the, on the planet, Ron ran uh, kind of the same thing with uh, the blue flame, how he's out there, how he's on his own. We don't really know. It's in the first issue. It, it sort of seems to be irrelevant. What is relevant is he has to answer for uh, or defend humanity in this tribunal, in this court um, where people or alien beings, I guess you'd say, are are ready to pass judgment on the human species. So Christopher Cantwell is a huge Star Trek fan, and it's very much kind of reminiscent of that scene in the, the very first episode of 
Next Generation encounter at Farpoint where Captain Picard is the one who uh, is set to answer for humanity's crimes and try to defend humanity and keep them from these beings, the Q continuum from wiping all of humanity out. So it's going to be, you know, much more interesting, I think, than Encounter at Farpoint. There's going to be a lot more to it. I mean, the fact that there's these dual narratives intrigues me. Uh, the, the scenes on Earth with the Blue Flame and his fellow non-powered but very much dedicated and um, sort of conscientious and just filled with heart. His teammates, they, they have so much heart. They just want to help. They just want to do more. They want to help their community. They're out there, you know, risking injury uh, to try to make the world a better place. The interactions between the teammates are, are fantastic. And it's something we talked to, uh, to Christopher about and something that he really wanted to uh, explore. So I have a feeling that maybe the, the earthbound story is going to be a lot about relationships and the way we perceive ourselves and, uh, and whatnot. And so, yeah, I think, I think Christopher Cantwell is an incredible writer. Uh, for those not familiar with his comic work, you may know the show Halt and Catch Fire, which he was co-creator on. He, he wrote a lot of it. He directed some episodes. Really, really talented guy. Very thoughtful. And uh, he really explores some really interesting concepts in his work. And so uh, I, I had to start off with the Blue Flame. I think it's spectacular. I think I bought three or four different covers of it. That's how much I believe in it uh, and want to support it. So I encourage you all to, to check it out at your uh, lo local comic shop. Hopefully they, they have copies. I have a feeling this is going to be one of those sleeper hits that, uh, that may be hard to find a little further down the line. So anyway, check it out. Like I said, uh, the blue flame, it's uh, the art by Adam Gorham is, is spectacular. Both of the scenes in far off space, it looks sufficiently cosmic and, alien and and just really cool and then the scenes on on earth much like they should be are are very grounded very realistic uh and again i, I think a lot of what we're going to get on earth is some some real character development some real um emotional kind of grounded relationships and so um i'm really looking forward to to reading more of of this um you know before like i said i had christopher on before even final order cutoff to talk about the blue flame. And the one bad thing for me is I, I got to read issue one before I had him on. He shared a, an advanced preview copy with me, but that means I have to wait that much longer, right? Like I've already waited a month for it, issue one to come out and I got to wait another month before issue two, but you know, first world problems, I guess I, I did get to, to read it ahead of time and it was, it was really spectacular. So I, I very much encourage you guys all to, uh, to check that out. Uh, all right. Up next, next book I want to talk about is from Marvel. It's Alien number three. So this is uh, sort of the the reboot, the first Alien series from Marvel. Now that they got the license back from uh, from Dark Horse, you know Marvel did or uh, DC rather, <laughs> DC Disney. That's what I'm trying to say. Disney, who owns Marvel, uh, also recently bought Fox last year, maybe the year before. Uh, so that includes the Alien property. So just makes sense that once the the license expired over at Dark Horse, that uh, Marvel would would put out some of their own Alien stuff. Philip Kennedy Johnson is a huge Alien fan. Saw him talking about this for for quite a few months ahead of time, before it came out. How much he wanted to get into the mythos of aliens and and whatnot, and it's it's very clear that he 
not only has an affinity for the property and the franchise, but he knows his stuff when it comes to, to Alien. So the artist is Salvador La Roca. Colors are by Guru EFX. Uh, later, letters are by Clayton Cowles. And, and what I love about what this creative team is doing is the story they're crafting is, is very much uh, steeped in, in the Alien lore that we know. To the point where when you read the the recap, you know, Marvel likes to do those recaps with a couple paragraphs of information inside the front cover. It mentions the first Alien movie and it mentions those events. It mentions Aliens, uh, the second movie, right, where the Marines go to LV-426 and uh, Sigourney Weaver's character Ripley agrees to go back and... Um, Paul Reiser's character is trying to smuggle aliens back in, in Sigourney Weaver's body and Ripley's body and in Newt's body. Um, all that is addressed. All that is, is the backstory. And uh, Philip Kenny Johnson is like really building off the mythos that is canon, that is at the core and the heart of those alien movies. So this one takes place in the year 2200. Uh, for context, the second alien movie um, the one I was just talking about takes place in 2179. So this is only 20 years after. And it's, uh, it's about the, the company, uh, Wylan Yatani, who w- were responsible for the Nostromo in the first movie. They were responsible for the colony on LV-426. They were responsible for sending the Marines in there and uh, the company that Paul Reiser worked for. Um, you know, they're this big multi- I was going to say multinational, but maybe multi-planetary is a better term in, in the context of aliens. They're this gigantic corporation, right? And in a way, they're sort of faceless and soulless, as many of those corporations are. And they, they want the alien technology. They want the xenomorph technology. They want the xenomorph biology. They want to study the specimens. They want to weaponize it. They want to um, commercialize it. And so basically what's going on is they have a a station that's floating around earth, they do recognize the, the danger of, uh, of these xenomorphs. And so at least they, they keep them off of the planet itself. And they, they have built a, a station that orbits earth. And this station is where they do their experiments uh, unbeknownst to the population, unbeknownst to the governments of the world and all that. Um, you know, it's, it's scientific or research or what have you. Nobody has any idea. These deadly aliens are up there. Uh, and the uh, the former security chief of the station who knows where all the bodies are buried and, and knows what horrible things have gone up there. Um, he It seems like he's being forced into retirement in the first issue. We don't know the context of that. Uh, he has an estranged son that he's trying to reconnect with, but his son has sort of been recruited by these anti uh, Weyland Yatani um, individuals who, who want to stop the corporation that... Think of them as sort of, uh, I guess you'd say tree huggers, right? And these environmentalists that are very much against these giant companies and, and what they do. And they, they definitely see them as evil corporations. And so they actually recruit this, uh, this former security chief's son to go and, uh, and steal his, uh, his, one of his father's uh, security passes that he still has. So they can sneak on board and, and destroy the research on the station. They have no idea that there are aliens up there. And so when everything goes horribly wrong for them, they go up there and they realize it's a, you know, they don't realize right away it's aliens. They just start destroying things. Aliens escape 
all hell breaks loose and, uh, and they're in trouble. And so what happens is the, the company goes back to Gabriel Cruz, the former security chief, and they, they kind of have him over a barrel, right? It's, it's his son. It's his security pass that was used to compromise the station. And so they, they basically tell him, go up there, neutralize the situation, bring us back the alpha, which is some mysterious alien something or other that we don't really know at this point what it is. Bring that back or don't, don't bother coming back at all. So uh, Gabe knows he's, uh, he's in a tough position, but despite the estrangement, he, he loves his son very much and he, he's going to do whatever he can to rescue him. So that's what's happened in the series so far. In the last issue, Gabe went up there with a couple of Marines who were kind of gun ho at first. They didn't really know what they were getting into. And obviously, when they got up there and saw the Xenomorphs, they're like, oh, crap, we just want to get out of here. Why, why would you why would they send us up here with just a couple guys? You know, we should have come up here with like three or four uh, battalions or whatever, like, you know, units, like a, a bunch of guys, basically. Um, so this issue is all about Gabe and those soldiers trying to find Gabe's son on the station, if he's still alive, trying to neutralize the situation. Um, but it's, it's action-packed from start to finish. The art by Salvador Roca is, uh, is very good, like Salvador art tends to be. We get the return of a classic aliens character that's very welcome. It's a very fun uh, callback to, uh, to the movie. And he shows up here and, and yeah, it, it, it's very fast paced. It, it feels like you're watching an alien movie. Uh, it's it, like I said, really steeped in the lore, really steeped in uh, just tied in closely with the alien movies and the storylines that we've seen before. So if you are an aliens fan, uh, even casually, I definitely would recommend the series. Um, I think Philip Kennedy Johnson is the perfect person to be writing this he uh, he excels at world building and he has the opportunity to really sort of create a whole new area of canon uh, for Alien, for the franchise, kind of like the Star Wars comics have done, filling in the gaps between movies. Uh, Kennedy Johnson has that same opportunity here and it doesn't seem like he's wasting it uh, because the, the series has been really awesome. I mean, I, I love the movies, but I've never been a fan of alien and comics because i feel like the it's kind of the same way about that i do about predator it doesn't translate that well um because those movies are so visual and so dynamic and so much of uh, the fun of it comes from the you know the movement and the kind of the sense of tension that you get with the music and you know everything just kind of works in concert to, to give you that feeling of foreboding you don't get that in a comic but Kenny Johnson, like I said, he's, he does a great job of, of bringing that, that kind of sense of, of dread to life um, with the way he paces things out and, and the story that he's written. So I do highly, highly recommend it. Uh, all right. Up next is Black Widow number seven. This is from writer Kelly Thompson. Elena Casagrande does the pencils. Elena and Elizabeth D'Amico handle the inks. Jordi Belair is on colors. Corey Petit handles the letters. Uh, there's covers from Adam Hughes, which I think is driving a lot of sales for this book. And all I can say is that's great, but I hope people are taking the time to read it because this is without question, and it's not close, this is the best Black Widow series that has ever been done. 
the vulnerability and the relatability and the humanity that Kelly Thompson has brought to Natasha is something that has never been achieved as successfully or at this level uh, ever before. Um, you know, she started off with giving Natasha uh, a husband and a, uh, a son, her, her true genetic son. Um, and that weight and the decisions that Natasha had to make when her, uh, her, this fake life um, that her enemies had set her up with, um, it was just spectacular. Uh, so just to give a little more context, basically what happened is a bunch of enemies of Black Widow all got together and said, well, we can't neutralize her. We can't kill her. She always keeps coming back. She's, you know, one of the deadliest people in the Marvel Universe. So let's just try to take her off the board by making her happy. And they, they were able to capture her and brainwashed her and made her think that she was just this sort of everyday normal person, an architect living in the San Francisco Bay Area who was married and had a son. Um, and she was actually happy in that life, but, you know, it wasn't real. And eventually it crumbled and, um, you know, things had to happen. And um, I don't want to give much more detail than that because it's, it's very much worth reading. And so based on that, Natasha is still carrying around some pain and some memories of, you know, this, this life that she never should have had and wasn't really real, but the feelings that she had for her husband and the feelings she had for her son were very much real. And those feelings remain. And it's something that she's struggling to deal with during this sort of second story arc where uh, her along with uh, the white widow, Yelena Belova have um, sort of rescued this young girl off the streets of, uh, of San Francisco um, who was sort of wrapped up with this new villain Apogee. Um, they weren't a hundred percent sure how it all happened. Uh, but somehow Apogee has been giving these sort of kids that are living on the streets powers. Um, and Lucy was, was one such a kid. She's a, she's a very, capable thief, sort of a pickpocket. I think Natasha sees a lot of herself in Lucy. And so they managed to rescue Lucy and keep her out of the clutches of Apogee, but that's not enough. You know, obviously the White Widow and the Black Widow want to stop Apogee uh, overall. So they're investigating, they're trying to figure out what's going on. Um, and there's actually a pretty brutal scene. They, they end up going to, because what Apogee does, it's very cult-like. You know, he, he attracts these kids, he offers them you know, power and agency and, and whatnot, and, and in return for loyalty to him. And so um, the Black and White Widow infiltrate one of his uh, sort of cult-like meetings and prevent him from infecting more kids with, with powers with, that may or may not kill them uh, because they are able to capture one of the, the powered kids who serves as sort of a, a guard for Apogee, even though Apogee himself escapes. Um, and what happens with that, that kid that they're able to capture is, is pretty brutal. Um, so it, it definitely sparks something in Lucy. Lucy wants to help. But again, Natasha sees so much of herself in Lucy. So what do you do, right? Do you allow Lucy to help? Do you not? Um, so there's a lot of different emotions going on. This is a very emotional uh, story arc that's going on right now 
and uh, and it suits the book very very well. So uh, this is a like I said a really really great book, and you know there's lots more action. There's lots more character moments. A lot of character moments in this one. There's a scene between uh, Natasha and Yelena, which is very um, very fraught with with tension. You can see they don't always agree. They're very much like sisters in that way. They're very close, but a lot of times it's agree to disagree. There's also another uh, Marvel character, a very well-known Marvel character that, that shows up that's sort of teaming up undercover with uh, with Natasha. And and that there's some other things that go on with Elena in regards to that. So there, there's a lot of moving parts here, um, but it's, it's very well paced. It's very well drawn. The art is gorgeous. Uh, I've talked about it several times, uh, how amazing Elena Casagrande's artwork is. Um, this could be the best drawn book uh, of any at Marvel. It is that good. Um, and uh, the color work as well, you know, Jordi Belair. So um, there are certain scenes where there's sort of energy-based powers crackling across the page and, and Jordi Belair brings them to life very, very well. So this is one of, if not the best books that Marvel puts out and you definitely should be reading it. And uh, a lot of that does have to do with the art, just the, the way that Casa Grande sets things up on the page. Her, the choices she makes are so smart, especially on her double page spreads. Um, it's just gorgeous. It, it's amazing. I'm so impressed with the artwork. Uh, so impressed with uh, the story and the thoughtfulness of, of Kelly Thompson. Um, you know, I've always liked Black Widow well enough, thought she's a pretty cool character, very interesting, uh, loved all the different iterations of her costume, um, but I've never loved her this much. You know, I've liked her, I've never loved her. I, I'm in love with this series. I'm, I'm in love with Black Widow reading this book. It, I, every time it comes out, I'm, I'm excited. I'm, I'm very much looking forward to reading it and it, and it never lets me down. So uh, you all definitely should be reading Black Widow. Plus there, there's something to be said for those Adam Hughes covers. They are absolutely fantastic. So I will, uh, will agree with that. It makes perfect sense that the people really want to pick it up for those covers. I, again, I just hope that people are reading it and not just buying it for the cover and sticking it in a bag. Uh, so anyway, up next we have the department of truth uh, issue number nine. This is from writer James Tynan IV. Art is by Martin Simmons. Letters are by Adita Bidikar. We're back to the, the main narrative after taking a break on the second arc to sort of explore the origins of the Department of Truth. But in a way, we haven't uh, strayed that far from the origins because uh, we are very much still learning about what the department does, you know, we're, we're learning that with, with Hawk Harrison, who is sort of the, I guess you'd call him the fixer of the department of truth. And in this story uh, or in this episode, he's, he, how can I put it without, uh, <laughs> excuse me, without spoiling. I, I guess you'd say he's, he's teaching Cole, what it is that he does and how he does it. Like, you know, we know the department of truth exists to make sure that the, the truth that is in the best interest of the world is the truth that people accept. So, you know, the whole concept behind the department of truth is an, if enough people believe in something, it manifests itself and becomes real. 
So enough people believe in the black helicopters or UFOs or Bigfoot or black eyed kids. Um, then it becomes, or the earth is flat. For example, that was the first one we saw. If enough people believe it, then reality actually becomes that. Um, and so what the department of truth does is they, they try to steer people away from too many people from believing crazy things like that, that can harm the world in the long run and harm the human race. And, and basically that's where ha this Hawk Harrison character comes in. He has all kinds of tools that he uses to manipulate the media and subliminally uh, send messages to people to sort of change their beliefs so that they're always in line with what the department thinks is, is best for, uh, for mankind. So in this, uh, in this issue, Hawk Har Harrison is talking to Cole and he's explaining um, how he does it basically. Uh, so it's a little bit of a setup issue, but it is pretty interesting. Uh, maybe the most interesting thing is at the end, the blurb for the next issue, it says next month, Bigfoot. Uh, so that one should be really interesting. So I, I think this was necessary, but um it didn't move the story forward a lot. Um, it, but again, I think it wasn't necessary for us to understand how the department works and how much, uh, Hawk, how much power Hawk Harrison, this sort of nameless guy who just exists in the shadows, um, just how much power he wields in the world. It's they're fascinating concepts to, uh, to think about. And you wonder if Cole might be being trained to take over that job someday. So, uh, I think Department of Truth is a very unique book. I think it's a very good book, and uh, it's getting a lot of critical acclaim, and, and rightly so. Uh, all right. Up next, first Aftershock book uh, that I'm going to talk about. It's The Girls of Dimension X. I'm sorry. The Girls of Dimension 13, number two, uh, Ribbon of Darkness. It's written by Graham Nolan, who uh, a lot of you will know as an artist, but he's also a writer. Brett Blevins handles the art. Gregory Wright does the colors and Carlos M. Mangual does the letters. Um, and, and in the first issue, we met these four girls who were sort of recruited uh, to come and live in New York. And they were all on scholarship to go to do different things. I think one was going to the fashion Institute. Another one was going to go to cooking school or, or some kind of culinary Institute. Um, but what, why they've really all been brought together is, that they all have powers. They're all witches. Uh, they all have mystical abilities. And in this issue, it's explained to them that there are 13 dimensions and ex it's explained to them that those dimensions are under threat and their eyes are sort of open to why they've been brought together and what they need to do to protect earth. Um, they try to get a little bit of training in, but unfortunately the, um, the antagonists of the story, um, they get wind. They, they learn of these four uh, girls who are going to try to rescue the, the, the one lone person who's supposed to prevent this sort of interdimensional attack that's currently underway. Um, and so the girls are, are sort of forced to, uh, to go into battle basically before they've really had much training. Um, they're just going to have to rely on their their instinctual use of uh, of the magic. So um, I, I know I'm being super vague because I don't want to be spoilery at all for this one, um, but it's fun. It's really fun. It's colored very very brightly. Brett Blevins, uh, the uh, the 
the style he's using to illustrate this is very, uh, very much an animated style. You could definitely see this as a cartoon. So uh, it, it, it's really fun. It's well-paced. It's well-plotted. Uh, the characters are interesting. We haven't learned a lot about the characters. We've, uh, in terms of kind of nuanced and kind of their emotional state, we have learned kind of some superficial background on each of them, but I, I think it's coming to where we'll get more character development to kind of really understand who each of them is once they sort of get thrown into battle and they, they have to fight a battle that honestly, they're probably not ready to fight yet. They're not, they haven't learned enough. They're not equipped. So how they handle that stress, how they handle that, um, sort of pressure, I think, will uh, will tell us a lot about who they are. So pretty fun book. Um, I, I, do, I do recommend it. I think it's one of those you can pick up off the rack and flip through, and you'll know right away just based on the, the style of art um, and, and sort of the feel and tone of the book if it's something that you're going to like or not. Uh, all right, up next is Helm of Greycastle, or Helm Greycastle, I should say, uh, Chapter 2 book number two. Uh, stories by Henry Barajas. Color art is by Brian Valenza. Pencils by Ramat M. Hondanko. Uh, letter artist is Gabriella Downey. Uh, this is a really dense book. Um, it's sort of a mashup between uh, a fantasy story and like ancient uh, Aztec uh, myth and, and legend, I suppose you'd say. Um, and so this this group of adventurers, very much in sort of the, the Dungeons and Dragons sort of uh, motif, actually travel to, to Mexico where the Aztecs live to try to uh, rescue a certain somebody. They're, they're on a, a quest, I guess you'd call it. And they, they find themselves captured and sort of mired in the political machinations of the, the Aztec empire. So uh, the reason I say it's a very dense read is that it's, uh, Barajas doesn't take the time to really spoon feed information. There's a lot of information and a lot of relationships and a lot of Aztec names, which to, to us are sort of tough, you know, with all the consonants and all the syllables are all very long. And so sometimes it's sort of hard to follow, but if you take your time, read it multiple times, there is a, there is a lot of story there um, because there's so much going on. Uh, there's so many different characters and they all have their different motive motivations. And, uh, and sometimes it can be a little, little hard to keep them straight. But I, again, I think um, there's value in that because you can read the story over and over and, and glean more out of it uh, each time. The art is spectacular. The colors are done really, really well. And the other thing that we have, uh, you know, I mentioned these, uh, these fantasy characters feel very, uh, Dungeons and Dragons. Well, in the back, there's actually a module uh, for uh, an RPG game uh, called the Belly of the Beast. So uh, it certainly seems as though Helm Greycastle is uh, is a book that you could play. At, you know, the campaign as an actual Dungeons and Dragons campaign or or that style of role playing game. And we even have a, a character sheet for Helm Greycastle. Uh, that that name that's the title. It's also the, the name of one of the characters in the book, um, who one of the uh, fantasy characters, I guess you'd say. 
so in the back you you do have a character sheet where you can uh you can choose to play him in a, in a role-playing game if you if you want to so uh I, I do think that this this comic is probably appeals to those that, that like those role-playing games because there's as i said a lot going on and it's very much steeped in both uh, classic fantasy lore as well as the the myths and legends of the of the aztecs like i said so uh, if that seems like it might be up your alley, definitely give it a try. Uh, all right, up next, the first of, I think we got four Heroes Reborn titles this uh, this week. One of them I think was supposed to come out last week and it got a little delayed. Uh, but anyway, the main Heroes Reborn, uh, which is uh, issue five, it's got two stories. Second one's very short, uh, but the first one's called The Most Hated Man in the Heavens. It's written by Jason Aaron and then James Stokoe, handles everything else. Um, he's the artist. Uh, Corte Petit does, does do the letters. Uh, second story is called Born in the Stars. Jason Aaron writer, Ed McGinnis penciler, Mark Morales inks, uh, Matthew Wilson colors, and again, Corte Petit on letters. This is the Dr. Spectrum story, and it, it's pretty fun. It's narrated in the first person by Dr. Spectrum. And he, much like Hyperion, is very America first. Um, and he talks about like, you know, growing up as a young boy and wanting to be an astronaut and be out there in space and meet aliens so he could crack them in the jaw and teach them the American way. Um, so, you know, it's just becoming more and more apparent that these, uh, these, these heroes, the, this squadron Supreme who has sort of taken the place of the Avengers in this, in this reality, um, the squadron supreme of America in a way, they're a bunch of meatheads. They're not, they're, they're very um, nationalistic, you know, as opposed to just being altruistic and, and having the uh, sort of what's best for everybody at heart. It's no, it, it's America first. What's best for America. And it, it leaves, it, you know, they're not out and out villains, but, they certainly are are xenophobic and sort of zealots in a way, you know. Um, they worship at the altar of America, and it it it's disturbing. Um, maybe just hits a little too close to home, um, but it is a fun story. Uh, it, it's really crazy and cosmic, and I'm not the biggest fan of James Stokoe. The more I see of his work, the less I like it. Um, it is, you know, very detailed and. Um, I think a lot of people can compare it to like Jeff Darrow, but for me, it just, they're, they're, it's wildly inconsistent with how these characters normally look. It's just too stylized. It's, it's very recognizable as Stoko and he does have some interesting storytelling chops, but uh, all the, like the big splash pages and battle pages, while they're okay to look at, I, it, it's not something I'm going to go want to go back and read based on the art because I, I don't care for the stylized nature of it um, and the colors as well. Uh, they're, they're sort of muted in a way, um, which again, you know, he's doing his own colors, So this is the, the palette that he chose, but it, yeah, it's just a little off putting for me. And the other part of it is, you know, Ed McGinnis, I thought was going to draw this series. I can't imagine it's going to look that great in trade. It's certainly going to pull you out of the story when you're reading along and you've got, you know, normal traditional comic art 
And even though the styles aren't exactly alike, they're much more similar than anything like that you're going to get in this issue. When anybody's reading it, if they haven't read it previously, they're going to get to this issue and be like, whoa, why does this look so different? Even if it was just colored in, in the same palette as the previous issues, at least that would provide some, some continuity visually, you know, but that's just, it's not there. Um, but that being said, like, like I was saying earlier, it, it is action packed. I think Dr. Spectrum is a fun character um, despite his zealotry. Uh, I, I do like kind of the, the characterization he's get being given by, uh, by Jason Aaron. Uh, and then of course, all these Hero Reborn titles, we, we're seeing familiar characters in sort of an unfamiliar way, right? Either they're, um, they're mashed up with somebody else or they've, uh, they've changed their appearance or they're, you know, they're much more powerful than they were. This is a, a different reality where, where events unfolded in a different way. And so we get a couple of uh, characters here that we're used to seeing that look sort of much different and, uh, I guess I'd say at least one of them. He acts pretty, pretty true to himself from what we've seen. If maybe dialed up all the way to ten, um, and we also learn that uh, there's a classic Marvel villain that may be behind what's been going on, maybe behind this uh, this alternate reality that we're uh, that we're experiencing. Uh, backup story has to do with uh, another classic Marvel hero. Like I said, it's it's pretty short, and it's sort of the, I guess, the new updated origin of her, and uh, and how that's going to play out. I guess we'll have to wait and see, um, because we get uh, kind of a Wakanda reference as well right at the end, which seems to indicate that there's a lot more to that female character and and what her role might be going forward. So, um, but yeah, it, it's okay. Um, I feel like the whole Heroes Reborn event, it's a bunch of these one shots that are supposed to fit together, but I mean, it's Heroes Reborn. So, you know, and it's an event and, and it's a main, it's the main series. I get it with all the one shots, why they might feel sort of separate and standalone on their own, but you would think in the main series that they would it would just be a little more consistent instead of it's jumped around, you know, like the blur episode or issue last time, it was fun, but it didn't feel like it tied in that well with what had come before. You know, it's just like, you're reading a, again, a series of, of one shots and there is kind of the, the throughput line of, you know, the squadron Supreme of America and, and how they're, they may not be real heroes, at least not in, in the classic sense. Um, but it certainly felt like after that first issue with Captain America being resurrected, or maybe it was a second issue, Captain America being resurrected by Blade, we, we were going to see some of him. They, they haven't shown up since the second issue. They weren't in either of these issues. So just not sure what the point of this is. Uh, and, I've, and I've said that before, like who who was asking for a Heroes Reborn reboot, right? Was, was anybody? Um, anyway, uh, the next Hero Reborn title is called Magneto and the Mutant Force. Uh, this one's written by Steve Orlando. The art is by Bernard Chang. Colors by David Curiel. Letters by Clayton Cowles. Uh, and this is basically, hey, what's going on with the X-Men in, um, in the Heroes Reborn universe? 
gorgeous art from Bernard Chang, like spot on, absolutely fantastic. Uh, the story from Steve Orlando is uh, we get thrown for a loop at the end and we, we get a classic X-Men villain that shows back up. Not, not one that I really wanted to see, to be honest. I thought maybe we were going to get some onslaught action. And I think that would have been really cool. Um, instead, we get someone else showing up. Um, but uh, I guess the best way to describe this issue is the more things change, the more they stay the same. And for the mutants, what I mean by that is it doesn't matter what the reality is. It doesn't matter how much you twist it, untwist it, spin it around, you know, mirror image, whatever, however you want to call it, however re reality changes, the mutants are still being persecuted. They're still being hunted. They're still not being accepted. And uh, it's no different here in the, in the world of the squadron supreme of, uh, of America. So they're out there trying to fight for their survival and, uh, and do the best they can. And uh, I guess we'll see based on the revelation for the last uh, on the last page, how that, how that affects the mutants place in, in the world and whether or not they can take on the squadron supreme of America or not. So Again, I don't feel like this is 100% necessary if you uh, are reading the Heroes Reborn main title. If you're an X-Men fan and you're curious how this Heroes Reborn event is affecting them, then you definitely want to pick it up um, because it is well-paced and very well-drawn and, and the dialogue is good. Um, I, I just I question whether it's necessary. But uh, if you're going all in on... Uh, Heroes Reborn, and you want the full story, and you want the richness of, of how it uh, affects all different corners of the Marvel Universe, then you'll, you'll definitely want to check it out. So, uh, all right, on to the next Heroes Reborn book. It's called uh, Heroes Reborn Siege Society. It's written by Cody Ziglar. The art is by Paco Medina, colors by Pete Pantazis, and letters by Joe Sabino. This is basically Thunderbolts. Uh, you know, the, the Thunderbolts version uh, or alternate version, I guess you'd say. Uh, it's, it's a team of, of heroes and villains that are led by Baron Zemo. Uh, Sabretooth is there, basically Hawkeye, even though they call him something else. Uh, well, no, I guess they call him Hawkeye. Um, the, uh, the Silver Witch, who's the speedster spellcaster, which basically the mashup of uh, Wanda and uh, her brother uh, Pietro Maximov, and then uh, the Black Widow still has the same name, so obviously Natasha Romanov. Sabretooth is there, and there's uh, sort of a, a Soviet version of the Captain, uh, who's called the Soviet Agent, the Super Soldier of Stalingrad. And instead of just Ant Man, Scott Lang is Fire Ant, a size uh, shifting super thief, uh, is what they call him. So. Uh, again, this, this is sort of the, the Thunderbolts, um, you know, twisted around and, and, and a little bit different for the world of, uh, of Squadron Supreme. So uh, the story's interesting enough. Um, there's not a, a whole lot to it. It's basically the, the, um, this team of, of heroes or villains, <laughs> whatever you want to call them, however you want to put it. Uh, that called themselves the Siege Society, wanted to take on the uh, the Squadron Supreme of uh, of America. 
they definitely see the squadron as as something that's not good for for mankind but Baron Zemo just wants to kick him out of Europe and then take over Europe for Hydra. So that's not much better, dude. It really isn't. Um, but this is all about Zemo's plan for how that's going to go down. And, uh, and then we get an appearance by Nighthawk at the end, which gives us a lot of information and a lot of characterization about who Nighthawk is in the context of this hero reborn world. We get plenty of other members of the squadron supreme that show up here um and the character moments in this are spectacular it's the best part of the book uh and how it all gets resolved and whether or not we see more of this um this group will will yet to be determined i don't think we will just based on on what happens to zemo at the end but it's entirely possible we do see the the siege society in in some form or another uh coming up uh, again in this event but Overall, it was a lot of fun. Uh, I think where the book really was at its best was in those those character moments that were so expertly placed within the action. Um, it really helped flesh out and gave us a sense of uh, who these characters are. And in this sort of alternate reality where some characters can be mashed up with others or just be wildly different from who they were, I thought that Ziegler did an incredible job of, of dropping information in making reference to things that would allow us to get a deeper understanding of these characters without making it, you know, just walls of text basically. So, uh, so I, I did enjoy it. I thought it was, uh, it was pretty solid. So again, much like the, uh, the, uh, the X-Men book that I was talking about, the heroes reborn X-Men book. Um, I will recommend picking up the, uh, the siege society only if, you plan on going all in either you're a huge Thunderbolts fan or you're just planning on going all in on the heroes reborn event and you want to get as much rich richness out of the event as, uh, as possible. So, uh, all right. Up next is the last, the fourth and final, uh, heroes reborn tie in. It's called young squadron. This is sort of the champions version, um, of those heroes, uh, the champions title, uh, as it pertains to Heroes Reborn. So Truth at All Costs is what it's called. Jim Zub is the writer. Steve Cummings, the artist. Eric Arsenega is handling the colors. Clayton Cowell does the letters. So same team that brings us champions every month, and and it shows because there's a lot of heart. This is my, probably my favorite tie-in of the entire series so far. Uh, we get an alternate origin for uh, Sam Alexander Nova, who becomes Kid Spectrum, we get an alternate um, origin and, and explanation for Kamala Khan, who becomes girl power. We get an alternate origin and identity for Miles Morales, who becomes the Falcon. Um, and those three team up and they're doing their best to make their mentors proud. Um, and uh, despite the fact that their mentors don't always want them out there fighting on their own. So uh, when they are out there and they're fighting against um, a super villain team uh, or crew, uh, they are confronted by another very classic, much beloved Marvel character who has gone a little bit more over to the dark side, I'll say. Um, and what they learn from him has them thinking that this world isn't exactly what it's supposed to be. 
uh, and maybe it's the arrogance of youth, maybe it's the perception, perceptiveness of youth, but they, they sort of buy into that much easier than a lot of other people who've been uh, confronted with it. So they're, they may be allies for, for Blade and Captain America at some point um, because they realize something is off. So uh, there's, there's great character moments. The action is fantastic, great color work. Um, yeah, I, th I thought this one was really, really good uh, and really interesting. I love that they completely changed the identity of all three of these heroes, um, but they're still very much recognizable as who they are, especially with kind of the, the voice that Jim Zub gives them, you know, what they sound like, their ch choice of vocabulary and, and whatnot. So re really impressed with Young Squadron. Thought it was very, very well done. Uh, okay, up next is a book called Made in Korea. It's by Jeremy Holt. The art is by George Shaw, letter by, lettering by Adam Wollett. I didn't know what to expect. I had no idea what this was, but it was a first issue, so I thought I would check it out. Um, and we don't have a lot of answers yet, but contextually, there's some things that we can sort of guess at. It seems like the world has become infertile. Nobody is able to conceive uh, and have any any children. Um and then we, we meet, we see an Asian programmer, I'm assuming he's from Korea based on the title, and he has had some sort of breakthrough that he then decides to hide from his employers because he had that breakthrough while he was, uh, he, while he was at work, while he was working on a work computer. And when he, he mentions it to a colleague, his colleague says, uh, you know, he mentions having a breakthrough and his, his colleague says, well, I hope you didn't do it at work because then they, they own it. And so then it seems like maybe he stash it, finds a way to stash it, or he's trying to, to find a way to, to get it out in the world without people knowing that it's him and maybe he plans on retrieving it later. Not exactly sure. Um, but I, I, you know, again, I had no idea what to expect. I hadn't read anything about it. Um, it was a number one. So I wanted to, to check in on it and I was, I was pulled in right away. Uh, the, the, the dialogue is very interesting. The character interactions are very interesting. And this underlying mystery of us being sort of thrown into the middle of the story without a lot of context has me hooked, has me interested. I want to know the answers to this stuff. And, um, and, and some of the characters are very endearing right from the start as well. And that makes you want to keep reading. So uh, I'm not familiar with this creative team. Um, I'm not familiar with this book in terms of, you know, knowing about it ahead of time, but I think it's well worth your time. I feel like these, this is the kind of series that image was, was created to make, right? Just complete creative freedom to tell a really cool story and, uh, and where it goes from here, I guess we'll see. But I was very, very impressed with made in Korea and I, I highly recommend picking it up. All right, up next is Maestro War and Pax number five. This is the final issue of, uh, of this mini for Maestro. It's written by Peter David. Javier Pina handles the art in the main story, Vici. German Peralta handles the art in the second story, The Black Scythe. Uh, Jesus Arbatov handles the colors in both. Travis Lanham does the letters. And we get the final battle between Dr. Doom and uh, the Hulk, the Maestro that was sort of teased in 
uh, in last issue. And because it's Dr. Doom and because it's Maestro, it's an interesting fight. It definitely sort of kind of goes back and forth with both of them thinking they're a few steps ahead of the other one. And then it turns out they might not be. And yeah, I think it's all handled really, really well. Uh, I will say that I prefer Herman Peralta's art to Javier Pena's. Uh, we got Herman Peralta on the, uh, the first series, which I thought was really great. Um, but I mean, based on the first issue, I thought we were going to get something different than we actually did. This is a much more straightforward narrative that Peter David is telling, which is fine. But again, I just sort of expected something different. That being said, if you're a fan of the maestro, if you're a fan of the Hulk, this, this sort of evil version of the Hulk, Peter David's being very true to the character that he created. Um, it's just like, like I said, the, in the first series, I sort of expected us to see that journey and see Banner sort of struggle with basically being forced to make choices that set him down the, the wrong path. But he, he seems to actually take glee and joy in it. And that continues in this, uh, in this issue. So um, the other part about it is, uh, you, you know, originally we were just getting the Maestro series and then it was so wildly popular and did so well in sales. They announced this war in packs. And uh, in the back of this one, I, I hadn't heard, but apparently there's going to be another, uh, another Maestro series called Maestro World War M number one. It says coming soon. Um, and along with that, we do see a scene at the end of issue five where uh, a very classic Hulk villain does show back up. So um, I expect this series, the series of mini series to continue as long as it keeps selling as well as it does. So again, there's nothing wholly original here. It is Peter David filling in the blanks of how the maestro gained power. But uh, like I was saying earlier, I, I rather, I would have liked a little more in how the Hulk became the maestro in the first place, instead of just from one issue to the next, almost, it seems like he just decided humanity sucks. I'm just going to rule everything. Why not? I'm immortal. Um, and so it's about how he consolidates power rather than him making the conscious effort to be become a bad guy. Uh, the black sky part three is uh, the art's really good. Like I said, Herman Peralta and it's a, uh, I don't know. That's a totally necessary story. I mean, it is part three um, and it's the, the ending they always had in mind. Uh, and it, it's kind of interesting in its commentary on what this world is like, this, this sort of post-apocalyptic world that Maestro is eventually going to rule over. If you've read uh, the classic Hulk future Imperfect two issue uh, prestige format story. Um, so it does have value, but not not a whole lot. It's not like we we learn anything new, but it it, it might trigger or uh, inspire some some deep thinking in, in some readers in terms of what what humanity deserves. That's sort of the the thing that's mentioned right toward the end. All right, up next is uh, Miles Morales Spider Man number twenty six. This is written by Saladin Ahmed. The art is by Carmen Canero. Colors by David Curiel, letters by Corey Petit. Uh, absolutely spectacular art from Carmen Canero. This is the first part of the Clone Saga. Uh, it's clear to me from the story that we get from Saladin Ahmed that this isn't going to be some giant sprawling story like the first Clone Saga. 
it's very much going to be uh, Miles Morales being very self-aware and maybe doing some self-examination when he sort of sees different aspects of himself in these clones. Um, so based on this issue, I think it's going to be really fun and really spectacular. Uh, we even get a, a guest appearance from, uh, from Peter Parker in this one. So uh, I, I really enjoyed it. I think Saladin Ahmed just gets the character of Miles Morales so well and gives him such an authentic voice um, and does a good job with, with balancing the action and the fun that you would expect from a Spider-Man book with sort of the, the angst and the, the worries and the stressors that Miles has to put up with, um, you know, getting his homework done, going to high school, maintaining friendships, maintaining romantic relationships and whatnot. It's all very classic Spider-Man-esque storytelling, and Saladina Med does a, an incredible job so uh, I, I do recommend checking out the first part of, uh, of the Clone Saga. It is pretty damn good. Uh, all right. Up next, we have Nuclear Family, number four, the penultimate issue, Till We Find the Spark. This is written by Stephanie Phillips. We have art by Tony Shastine. Colors are by J.D. Mettler. Letters are by Troy uh, Petrie. Uh, this book continues to surprise me and delight me just when you think you know where stephanie phillips is taking us um she's done it almost every issue i think she's done it every issue she pulls the rug out from under us right at the end and gives us some some shocking reveal on the last page or two that completely subverts our thinking and com completely subverts what we okay i think i finally know what this story is about i think i finally know where she's going with this and then it turns out to be something completely different. So uh, if you're not familiar with it, it's a story uh, uh, set in the 50s originally in the first issue and a very, quote unquote, nuclear family, right? So husband, wife, daughter and son, probably a dog. Um, and the father's, a, he sells cars, a used car lot and comes home one day and they find out the bombs are falling and they go down into their basement bomb shelter because here it is, finally, atomic bombs are falling, nuclear war. And they emerge in issue two, and they've somehow time-traveled 10 years forward. And they're captured by what's what's left of the government, who's running this underground facility. And they think that all of these uh, this family are a bunch of spies, um, because they don't believe that they could have been out there in the wasteland for all this time, you know, living. And they certainly don't believe the time travel story. It seems, you know nonsensical and and wildly out there and so what's next basically right so they've come, been brought into this installation and they're trying to stay together as a family and try to find out what's going on nobody will give them answers like i said they don't uh, the powers that be don't believe anything they uh, that this family says and so it's very interesting still not sure there's only one issue left and i'm not sure how this all wraps up but what i do know is it's fun and tension filled and dramatic and the art by T Tony Shastine. I've said this about every issue. It is so perfectly suited to tell this story, uh, 50, 60s, right? There's a sheen to his art, this almost plastic like feel, which suits the time period perfectly. Uh, when we talked to Stephanie Phillips, last time we had her on the show, I asked her about choosing Tony for the book and she's, basically said, yeah, that was the only guy that the only person that she ever wanted on it um, because she knew his style would be 
so perfectly suited for it. And she's uh, she's 100% correct. So check out Nuclear Family Aftershock book, issue number four. It's on stands and it's, uh, it's really great. Uh, okay, up next we have Shadecraft number three. It's from the Eisner-nominated team of writer Joe Henderson. Lee Garbett is the artist. Antonio Fabella handles the colors. Simon Bolin on letters. Um, third issue, we're, we're learning much more about Zadie, and she's learning much more about her powers. That's sort of at the heart of, uh, of what this issue is. But in learning about those powers and, and, and sort of finding herself a mentor, what becomes apparent is that these shadows and where they come from may not be what Sadie originally thought, and that could have an effect on who she believes the shadow of her brother is and, and what it is. And so uh, this one also ends on a, a bit of a cliffhanger. Um, so this was the, the most action-filled um, issue of this series so far. Sadie going through a, a little bit of training and then sort of deciding with just that little bit of training, she's capable of going out and fighting shadows. And so all that was, uh, was really interesting. But the best part of it is how seamlessly Lee Garbett intertwines character moments and character growth and uh, some, some great sibling moments between Sadie and her brother, uh, how expertly Joe Henderson intertwines the action with those, uh, with those moments. Uh, the art, like it always is with this art team, is amazing. Uh, the line work from Lee Garbett is up to his usual outstanding level. And then the color work by Fabella is spectacular. There's scenes at nighttime at a carnival. The light lighting is perfect. The shadows are menacing. Um, just an incredible, incredible job by this creative team. This is one of those independent books that's coming out right now that show the power of independent storytelling. And how in a lot of ways, the indie books right now are better than, than everything that, that the big two are putting out. So uh, the first two issues have sold out. So if you're interested in getting caught up, there are subsequent printings, but this is a book you definitely want to reserve a copy at your local comic shop, put it on a pull list, pre-order, whatever you need to do, because uh, it's definitely worth your time. Absolutely fantastic. Uh, all right. Up next, we have Shadow Doctor number four, Do No Harm. Also the second to last issue of this series from Aftershock. It's written by Peter Calloway. Georges Jante is the artist. Juan Cho handles the colors. Charles Pritchett does the letters and logo design. Uh, just a quick reminder, this is based on a true story of the writer Peter Calloway's grandfather, who basically became the, the private physician, private doctor for Al Capone and his gang in Chicago in, uh, in the 30s. And uh, the context of the book is that that man is now dying. He's on his uh, deathbed in a hospital, and he's relaying this information, these stories to his son, who would be Peter Calloway's father. And in this issue, we find out how he feels about being Al Capone's sort of on-call doctor for him and his gang, and kind of the moral dilemmas that come with that, and how he tries to mitigate that 
so that he can basically not feel too too terrible about himself. So this is another series that has been absolutely fantastic from the start. This issue is definitely an upswing. I feel like issue three was sort of set up and it was uh, it was a, a downturn in terms of story beat and uh, and pacing and whatnot. Um, but probably necessary so we can ramp back up to a big finish in uh, in issue number five because this issue four feels like it's definitely building for some to something and uh, that's certainly the case when you look at the final the final page um, so it's it's amazing I can't wait to not only read the last issue and then reread the whole series in one sitting to get the full experience but I can't wait to have Peter Calloway on to talk about it uh, he's been on the show before so I'm hopeful I'm hopeful that he'll like uh, he'll be willing to come back and, and talk about this and talk about his grandfather. Uh, that's part of what makes it so fascinating that it's a true story. Um, it, it's really, really good. The character work feels authentic um, and, and likely because, you know, these are stories that that Peter Calloway has heard from his family over uh, over time. So, yeah, really, really great. The, the artwork by George Jante suits the story it's very grounded um it's not like it's real but not in a photo realistic way it's very much comic art but it's not it's not fancy you know it's very it's very grounded um there's a couple of montage pieces that are done really really well uh the color work by Juan Cho uh sort of a muted palette which again suits the type of story that this is so I've heard quite a few people talking about this book online, actually, and uh, I haven't seen a bad word about it, and it, it really is that good. All right, well, continuing sort of our, our shadow theme, right? We had Shadecraft, then we had Shadow Doctor. Now we're going to talk about Shadow Man. Uh, shadow Man number two from Valiant, written by Cullen Bunn. The art is by John Davis Hunt. Colors by Jordi Belair. Letters by Clayton Cowles. Uh, since in a theme here, <laughs> Jordi Belair is coloring a lot of books this month. And Clayton Cowles is handling a lot of letters. Um, I don't have much to say about this book other than you can never count out Cullen Bunn, right? Um, I wasn't super drawn in with the first issue of Shadow Man. I thought it was okay enough. Uh, this issue, I, I'm starting to feel sucked in. Um, and mostly it's because of the characterization that he's giving Jack Boniface. Um, he's... You know, this isn't necessarily feeding off of or building upon what came before that Andy Diggle did, which I absolutely loved and wanted to continue. Uh, Cullen is putting his own original spin on this, which is perfectly fine. Um, but at, like I said, after that first issue, I wasn't sure that it was going to work. Well, after this issue, I'm, I'm, I've done a complete 180 and it feels very much like it's going to work um, because a lot of the problems I think that some people had with Shadow Man when Valiant relaunched in, in 2012 was about kind of the self-doubt and the, um, the lack of confidence that Jack Boniface had that he struggled with. Cullen gives us a very, a very confident Shadow Man, somebody who understands his power, somebody who understands his role. And we're just being thrown into this quirky, kooky spooky action superhero story that happens to 
deal with horrific things and magic and shadows and the dead side and whatnot. So um, obviously perfectly suited for the types of stories that, that Cullen wants to tell. And uh, the John Davis Hunt artwork kind of plays into that. Uh, I, th I feel like the artwork here is, is much more recognizable for me as John Davis Hunt, more so than the first issue. And uh, the action scenes are spectacular and the detail, um, you know, which all the things I've come to expect from John Davis Hunt art aren't, aren't letting me down here. Uh, we have several plot threads that uh, started in the first issue that continued through here. Uh, we got a couple of new sort of ideas and, and characters popping up here. So um, yeah, this is, this is pretty solid. This is pretty solid work from, uh, from Cullen. So if you're a fan of Cullen, if you're a fan of horror books, if you're a fan of Shadow Man, definitely give it a try. Uh, all right, up next we have uh, the first of two Star Wars books, and these both are prelude tie-ins to the War of the Bounty Hunters. The first one is uh, is Darth Vader, number 12, written by Greg Pak. The art is by Gui Villanova. We have Dean White with Giada Marchisio on colors and Joe Caramagna on letters. Um, and just a quick note on Joe Caramagna, there was a really cool article that came out. I think it was... Was it the New York Times? Maybe it was the New Yorker. Um, and I was talking about, I didn't know this about Joe, but apparently he's a huge donut aficionado. And, you know, Krispy Kreme Donuts had announced that if you got yourself vaccinated, you could show up at Krispy Kreme, show your vaccination card and get a free glazed donut. And so I thought, okay, cool. You get vaccinated to get a free donut. Well, I guess I didn't read it close enough because it's not, you, you can't, you don't do that just once. You can come every day. You can show up once a day and get one free glazed donut from Krispy Kreme. Well, apparently there's a Krispy Kreme that's a, about a mile away from Joe's house. And being that he's a, a donut aficionado, he's been going almost every day to get a, a donut. So that is dedication, uh, dedication to the donut, we'll say. So I, I just thought that was really funny uh, and interesting. And when I read the story to my wife and daughter, they immediately were looking, <laughs> looking up where's the closest Krispy Kreme to where we live? So uh, all inspired by Joe's uh, quest to uh, eat as many Krispy Kremes as he can, I guess. Um, anyway, this War of the Bounty Hunters prelude for Darth Vader feels like a lot of setup, to be honest. Um, it does sort of suit the tone and the feel that you would want a book to have that fits between Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi uh, it, it's very insightful. It gives us a lot of sort of uh, window into how Darth Vader is feeling at this time. Um, and, and the fact that he's always planning and scheming, he's definitely a, a, a manipulator. His feelings for Han Solo adds a little context for why he may have frozen him in carbonite and, and all that sort of thing. So um it definitely feels like a Darth Vader book and it, it has that star Wars feel, but like a lot of these preludes, it's, it's more of a down issue. It's more of a setup uh, issue. The art is, is solid. Um, it's sort of hard for me because that, that first, uh, the first Darth Vader series, when, when Marvel got the, the license was written by Karen Gillan and the art there was by Salvador La Roca. And that was the best Darth Vader art I had seen since like Al Williamson way back in the day. So, you know, so I don't, I don't mean to compare, but it's hard not to 
when that's what I have pictured in my mind, the Sal Salvador LaRocca version of Darth Vader. And then, you know, we get this version and while it's still very good, it doesn't quite live up to that uh, sort of polished feel that Salvador LaRocca has. So um, this one's a relatively quick read. Like I said, it's, it, it, I think that if you could say anything about the issue, it's, it's very much a, a character study of Vader's feelings of where he is at this point in the, the Star Wars timeline, more so than kind of setting much up. It does set up a little bit right at the end uh, going forward. And of course we get the to be continued in Star Wars where the bounty hunters number one. So we'll see how that plays out in the, uh, in the long run. All right. Well, the last book I'm going to talk about, uh, as I said, there was two Star Wars books. There's one other. It's also a War of the Bounty Hunters prelude. It's Dr. Afra, number 10. And this is written by Alyssa Wong. Pencils are by Ray Anthony Height. Inks by Victor Olasaba. Colors by Rochelle Rosenberg. And letters by Donut Aficionado Joe Caramagna. Um, this is another one much like the, the regular Bounty Hunters title where you're going to get way more out of it if you've been reading Dr. Afra all along. Now, with War of the Bounty Hunters, I, uh, I went back and I reread the first 11 issues because I'd been buying it. Um, I have not been buying Dr. Afra, so I'm sort of lost when it comes to the context of what's going on. Um, so it's hard for me to, to really judge this. Um, so I'm not going to say any more, any more than that. The art is great by Ray Anthony Height, which I come to expect. Uh, at the end, they do seem to be on a collision course with a lot of the other characters that uh, we've been introduced to in War of the Bounty Hunters, but in a much more tangential way um, than uh, a lot of the other characters that we're talking about. So I'm hoping before the, the spotlight on Friday, because we're still doing our War of the Bounty Hunters spotlights, on Fridays where we go full spoilers and basically go page by page, I'm hoping to get caught up. I'm hoping to digitally check out the, uh, the first what, nine issues, I guess, of Dr. Afra, and uh, see if it'll then bring me some context on, into what's going on with the story. Cause there's several different plot lines. Afra, like she's very much an anti-hero. I can see why people like her, but I just don't have enough context to really get a lot out of the story. It's solid enough, but I can't even really hint at what's going on because I'm just, I have no context for it. So it, it probably is worth reading if you're a big Dr. Afra fan, because again, there's a lot here. There's a big chunk of story here, moves a lot of plot lines forward and it, and it is well-paced and well-plotted and put together very well. And the story beats hit where they're supposed to hit. So technically a very good comic as well. Um, Again, I, I just don't have enough context to sort of put it all together yet. Uh, but join us for the, uh, like I said, the spotlight issue on on Friday, and hopefully I'll will have had a chance to uh, to read everything by then. All the Doctor Afra issues leading up to it, and I'll have uh, more context for you. So, so that's it. That's 19 issues. Can you believe it? Uh, went uh, went pretty pretty fast. I uh, th think I can feel my voice going a little bit. So hope you guys all stuck with me. As I said at the top of the show, it's, that's 30 books that we're covering for you this week. So we're really doing our homework for you. So let me talk about a few of the other books that uh, are on shelves today that you might want to be on the lookout for. I talked about three Aftershock books. There is one more. I Breathe the Body number five, which finishes up that story from Zach Thompson. 
super weird, esoteric body horror fungus kind of story. I don't know really what to make of it. Sort of not my thing. Uh, but I, that being said, I did read the whole thing. Um, I don't know if it's one that I would go back uh, and check out, but it, it does conclude today. So if you're curious enough, it is, uh, it is out there. Uh, from AWA Studios, Chariot number three of five, that's the Brian Edward Hill story uh, that he's been writing for AWA. That's out today. Abbott 1973, number five of five, that concludes that series from Saladin Ahmed from Boom Studios. Uh, Dune House of Atreides, number seven of 12. Uh, that maxi series is uh, ties into the new movie uh, with Dune uh, that's coming out. Something is Killing the Children, number 16 from James Tynan, is also out from Boom today. Uh, at, at DC, again, we covered all these in our DC Spotlight episode. Action Comics, number 10,000, or number, I'm sorry, 1,031. Batman Black and White, number six of six, which finishes up that. Uh, Batman Superman, number 18, by Gene Luen Yang, which is very, very good. Uh, Detective Comics, number 1036, art by Dan Mora, written by Mariko Tamaki. That continues to be a very, very good title. Uh, latest issue of Harley Quinn is out, written by Stephanie Phillips. Milestone Returns, Infinite Edition Zero. That was previously a digital-only comic. The print comic is out today. You can get some milestone information and uh, get caught up on things, get a little refresher before those milestone characters return. Uh, new Mr. Miracle series, the source of freedom, number one uh, of six. And this is the Shiloh Norman version of Mr. Miracle. And, and that one kind of surprised Rocky and I. It was better than much better than we expected. Uh, John Ridley's other history of the DC universe is up to issue four of five uh, spotlight on Renee Montoya. A second issue of Robin from Joshua Williamson is out. Uh, Stargirl Spring Break Special Number One, which was uh, the best DC book of the week for both Rocky and I. Uh, it comes out uh, or has or came out yesterday. Strange Adventures Number Ten of Twelve from Tom King, Mitch Gerrard, and Doc Shaner on art. Big revelation, supposedly the big bombshell. What's been going on? Let's explain it all to you. Uh, we get. Um, an explanation from Mr. Terrific, his his uh, investigation that he was hired by Batman or uh, or asked by Batman to conduct has concluded. So now he's drawing his conclusions. Um, I think Tom King is lying. I think he's trying to trick us, and I don't buy it. I don't buy the explanation we're given in Strange Adventures number 10. I have a theory of my own. Uh, if you want to know what that theory is, go listen to the DC Spotlight. You can jump to the end when we talk about Strange Adventures and uh, once I said my theory out loud, Rocky immediately jumped on board as well and believed that that was, uh, in fact, what was happening. Uh, Teen Titans Academy number three rounds out the DC titles that are out today from writer Tim Sheridan with amazing Rafa Sandoval art. Uh, when we move on over to IDW, we have uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, The Last Ronin, number three of five, next installment of that miniseries over at Image. Uh, Ascender number 15 from Jeff Lemire and Dustin Nguyen. We have Bitterroot number 13, Eisner Award winning series. Just got announced that Regina King is going to be uh, involved in the movie. I think she's going to be directing it. Uh, I mentioned Department of Truth. Haha ha, number five of six from W. Maxwell Prince. I'm sure if Jay or Manny had joined me, they would have talked about that. I did not read it. Uh, Philadelphia number 13, which a lot of people have been praising. Uh, Old Guard, A Tales Through Time, number two, from Greg Rucka. 
obviously that uh, is, if you watch the Netflix movie with Charlize Theron, you're familiar with uh, the old guard uh, concept. So that's out today from Image, as well as the latest issue of Spawn, number 318. And Two Moons, number four, that's another book that uh, Jay swears by that he would have talked about had he been able to, uh, to join me. Uh, over at Marvel, in addition to the books that I talked about, Beta Ray Bill, number three of five, is out. Black Panther, number 25, uh, also is out today. Uh, the, uh, let's see, I think I talked about almost all these. Oh, Reptile, number one of four, new miniseries starring a young uh, hero in the Marvel Universe is out. Uh, new Mutants, number 18, as well as X-Men, number 20 from the uh, X-Men corner of the Marvel Universe are also hitting comic shops today. There's another new series from Scout called Red Shift, number one. Uh, don't know about that one. Didn't hear about it. Not sure what it involves, uh, but it is on stands today. And that's it. That's all, uh, that's all I'm going to mention. Um, I think that there's a, a ton of great books out today. Super hard to pick a um, book of the week. Uh, Blue Flame is up there for me. Shadow Doctor is up there for me. Black Widow is up there for me. Uh, I mentioned the best DC book of the week is probably that um, Spring Break special from Jeff Johns and uh, and Todd Nock, who handles the art. So there, there's no no shortage of uh, of great books this week at all. Um, and uh, I, I was just really happy with with what we got um and obviously so because that's the whole reason that i had uh 19 books to talk about because i felt there were 19 books deserving of being uh, of being talked about that uh that heroes were born champions analog you know the young squadron was very very good so was nuclear family so was miles morales so you know if, if you if you hold me down and make me pick a book of the week, I still, I got to give it a tie between the blue flame number one and, and Shadecraft number three. For me, those were the best, the best of the rest, if you will, um, you know, beyond the, uh, the DC book that I already mentioned. So um, absolutely spectacular books this week. Really, really great uh, man. Black widow too. Maybe throw that one up there. So I guess all that to say, I can't really make a choice. Um, tons of great books. Uh, let me know what, what you think. Let me know what books you thought were, were spectacular this week. Uh, so anyway, we hope you enjoyed it. Hope you enjoyed me covering uh, all these books. I know I did it in a very, very quick fashion, uh, but kind of had to with, the, with this many books. So uh, we hope you all uh, enjoy our Kickstarter spotlight that's out today as well with Mark Bernardin talking about the short film that he's uh, managed to successfully raise funds for, but the Kickstarter continues. So listen to that and join the campaign if you'd like. Uh, we also have a lot of other interviews coming up later this week um, that will be released at a later time. So can't, can't really talk about what they are at the moment, uh, but they will be out soon. So uh, as always, we hope you give them a listen. We appreciate your support and we will talk to you next time. You can find the Comic Source Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or whichever podcasting app you prefer. Please tell all your friends about us, subscribe, and rate us. The ratings really help with our visibility and our ability to reach new listeners, especially five-star reviews on Apple. 
Also be sure to visit us at lrmonline.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover all our other great pop culture content. If you want to email us, the email address is thecomicsourceblog at gmail.com, or you can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash thecomicsource. Do a search for The Comic Source on Facebook and Instagram to follow us on those social platforms. All three spots are great places to find out when we release new episodes as well as follow all our convention coverage. So once again, we want to thank everyone for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.